A misunderstood intent, a misunderstood intent often leads to the greatest misunderstandings. I'll tell you what I mean. A misunderstood intent. So if someone says something to me or someone writes something down and I read it, but I don't fully appreciate the intent of the person who was writing, why they wrote it or why they said it, it can often lead to a great misunderstanding. And I think, I think especially in, in, in relationships, uh, this is often how, how it happens, that one person in a relationship, could be a friendship, could be a business relationship, could be a dating rep- relationship or a marriage. In fact, if, if you've been with someone longer than one date, I guarantee you this has happened in your relationship, where someone says something and they intend it a completely different way than how it is received, right? And that changes everything. That creates the greatest uh, misunderstandings often. My poor wife has to deal with this all the time because I'm so sensitive. She'll say something like, hey, can you please help me out with something? And I'll respond with something like, why do you think I'm so lazy, right? (laughs) It's because the intent is not the way I received it. The intent is, can you please just help me with something? Uh, But those create misunderstandings, don't they? In fact, I, I read one uh, this week that happened on text. Texting is, is, is like the king of creating these problems, isn't it? Email and text messaging. That's why we had to come up with emojis, which I'm not a giant fan of, but that's why you need them is because you need to somehow communicate, hey, I'm joking here, don't get offended. Or I'm actually happy when I'm saying this, so smiley face. I saw this one uh, just earlier this week. One person texted another person and said, I'm here for you. The person responded and said, thanks. I'm going through a tough time, so it means a lot. And then they said this, I'm sorry I lost all my contacts, who is this? And the person responded, this is your Uber driver, and I'm here to pick you up. And that's how these things happen, don't they? If we don't understand the intent of why something is written, if we don't understand the intent of why something is said, it can create misunderstanding. And it happens in our relationships. It happens in friendships. It happens in business. You have a coworker and you said something and you offended them and you never intended it to be offensive. It happens in all of these situations. It happens on text and it happens on email. And you know, it also happens. It also happens when we come to this book right here that some of the greatest misunderstandings coming out of this text, that some of the, the, the conclusions that have been drawn that are, that are erroneous conclusions are drawn primarily because we're, we're, we don't fully understand why something was written in the first place. Why that author put that down on, on, on the scroll, why that author wrote it down to begin with. And if we don't really understand why something was written down, It becomes difficult then for us, and I would suggest it becomes almost impossible to draw a correct conclusion. If you're going to draw a conclusion from a book in this this Bible, you need to fully understand why God had the person write it down to begin with if you're going to end up with the correct conclusion that you're supposed to come to. And so this morning, as we come to the end of the Gospel of John, and if you've been with us over the last few months, you know that in, in Palm Sunday, on Palm Sunday in, in March, we started walking through the Gospel of John together. Well, now here on this weekend, this is our last uh, sermon in the Gospel of John. Next week, we're start, starting the book of James for a few weeks. But when we get to the end of the Gospel of John, we are going to spend a little bit of time here this morning talking about why it is that John wrote this book If we don't spend time talking about why it is John wrote this book, the danger is, is that you and I could have sat through weeks and weeks and weeks and maybe months of sermons, 
and walk away with the wrong conclusion about what John is saying and why he wrote this book in the first place. And so in order that we all walk away with the correct conclusion about what it is that John wants us to understand and know about Jesus, we're going to talk about his intent in writing the book a little bit this morning. Now, here's the danger with this. Is my guess is it's, it's a holiday weekend. It's a holiday weekend and you came to church. Okay? Now, there's a few of you that are visiting this morning, which is great. We're glad that you're here. If you haven't been with us through this whole Gospel of, James, our, our Gospel of John series, that's okay, because we're doing a big review today. You came to like Cliff Notes Sunday, so you'll get it all just in one sermon, which is great. But my guess is most of us, are the, but it's like a lot of home teamers here this morning. Most of us on holiday weekend, you came to church because you're church people, and this is what you do. Here's the danger with this sermon this morning. You're going to be tempted as we get into what we're going to say this morning, what John says here, to say, I know this, I know this, I know this. I heard this all the time. I know this, I know this, I know this. I'm, I'm here to go deeper, I'm here to go deeper, I'm here to go deeper, I know this part. But don't miss it this morning. Don't miss what God might be saying to you because what we're about to talk about this morning is the foundational piece for everything else we believe in. And if you get this piece wrong, if it's off just a little bit as you build that tower of faith, if it's this stone is not set perfectly square and perfectly level, the entire tower is going to be out of balance. Your faith will look like the leaning tower of Pisa if this stone is not correct. And so let's not pass over it. I don't know, I don't care if you walked with Jesus for a day or you've walked with him for a hundred years. This is a piece that must be revisited and we have to be sure that we have it correct. And the big question before us this morning is this one. Why did John write his book? We have four books in our Bible that talk about the life and ministry of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Why did John feel the need to write this one. Historically, the other three books came first. This one was the last one written. So why did John feel like he needed to write this one? There's so many conclusions we could draw about Jesus having come through all the stories in John. So many things that you could look back on and say, oh, this is who Jesus is. And in fact, if you were to go out into uh, our world and you were to read articles online or you were to read people's tweets or you were to watch the shows on the Discovery Channel that talk about who Jesus is, we could find people that would read this book and read this same text, the Gospel of John, and come up with all sorts of different ideas as to who Jesus is and how we, what we should conclude about him because of what's written in this book. So some people would go back to John chapter two and John chapter three, and where in John chapter two, Jesus goes into the temple. Some of you know this story, and he flips over all the tables. Do you remember he's upset because they're selling things in his father's house and changing money and cheating people? And he flips over all the tables and he, and he tears the temple apart. And then in the next chapter, John chapter three, he meets a Pharisee named Nicodemus and he has a conversation with a religious leader of the day. And throughout the gospel of John, he has a giant problem with the people who are in charge charge, with the religious establishment. And so you could look at Jesus going through the temple and creating that chaos. You could look at him speaking with a man like Nicodemus and all of these religious leaders throughout the book, and you could say to yourself, I'll tell you who Jesus is. 
Jesus is a, is a, is a leader, is a man who was, who was upset with the establishment and upset with, with all of these people who were in positions of power, who lorded it over other people and who, and who became arrogant and prideful. Jesus came and he was like an, an ancient community organizer getting all of these people together to challenge the status quo. You could easily make that conclusion in John. Or you could go through and you could look at, at, uh, at John chapter 5 where Jesus begins to heal. And you could see the lame man who was by the pool and Jesus healed him. And then you could go to John chapter 9 where Jesus heals the man blind from birth. And you could go uh, to John chapter 11 where he raises Lazarus from the dead. And you could make the conclusion that the whole reason Jesus came is to do miracles and to do work. And he was kind of like a, a street magician. He was like the David Blaine of his day. He would walk around and he would do a trick. He would do a miracle and more people would come. And then he'd walk to another place and he'd do another miracle and more people would come. And that was the primary reason he existed is to come here and do these miracles and to show us he can do miracles. And when he would do them, more people would gather and that's the whole purpose of this thing. Or you could go to John chapter four and John chapter eight and John chapter four. Jesus has a conversation with a woman. We know her as the Samaritan woman by the well. And this is a woman who is ostracized from society because of her gender. I don't know if you remember when we talked about this a few months ago. She's ostracized because of her gender. She's ostracized because of her race. And she's ostracized because of the way she's chosen to live her life morally. And Jesus, comes in and while he doesn't affirm all of her decisions that she's made, he welcomes her back. He has a big conversation with her, which is radical for the day, for Jesus to go talk to someone who was a, a woman who was a part of this other race of people. And Jesus' conversation welcomes her back in and shows uh, for his followers the enormity and the magnitude of what his love is and what his gospel should look like. And again, in John chapter 8, you remember this story, the woman caught in adultery where she's thrown down in the street and they're all going to stone her to death. And Jesus comes along and he says, he says, look, uh, he says, those of you who are without sin, throw the first stone. And all these religious leaders have their stones ready to kill this woman. And one by one, they all drop their stones and walk off. We could look at stories like that and we could say, you know what Jesus came to do? Jesus came to break down barriers and Jesus came to unite people and Jesus came, his whole purpose was to do that. We could go and we could look at John chapter 13 through 17 where Jesus teaches his disciples and we could come to the conclusion that Jesus was a great moral teacher. And if we could just look at the things he says about love and unity in those chapters and we could put those into practice, it would be the greatest world ever. And that's what Jesus is. He's a great moral teacher. Or we could look at John chapter 18 and 19 where Jesus goes to the cross and dies on the, on the cross and we could say Jesus was a great martyr. He was willing to die for what he believed in. And so we should honor him and revere him the same way we revere people who die for things that they really believe in, who die for worthy causes. Now, all of those might be fine conclusions. I'm not saying Jesus didn't do those things. Don't hear me wrong. Jesus comes and he challenges the religious establishment. Jesus comes and he offers value and he breaks down barriers where people have put up barriers. And he says where people have put up false barriers and separated themselves by things like gender and race, Jesus comes and very specifically says, no, 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 not in my kingdom. That's not how it's going to work. And then Jesus does do miracles. Of course he does miracles and we should rely on him and, and ask for those. And Jesus is a great moral teacher and certainly the death of Jesus is important. All of those are important, but Here's the question. Is that, are any of those what John wants us to get out of his book? 
Is that why he wrote it? So that we would come to any of those conclusions? Well, John says very specifically, he didn't want there to be any question as to why he wrote these things down. So he says it very specifically in his book, why exactly he wrote this. And this is what he says, John chapter 20, verse 30. Take a look. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. I mean, John lets us know, I was very particular here. We were with this guy for three years. We went every day. Every day was great. A lot of things happened. I could have written a lot of other things in this book. But they're not written in this book because these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Justin, listen, I just want to be clear here. I could have written a lot of things about Jesus. There's a lot of great things. But I wrote these. And here's why I wrote them. So that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing, you might have life in his name. John is saying, not that Jesus isn't all those other things that we said and that we concluded, that Jesus isn't partially all of those things, but John is saying to you this morning that Jesus is something much bigger than all of those things. That all of those stories and all of those moments and all of those things that Jesus does are giant signposts pointing to a much greater and much larger reality. And John says, that is this. That Jesus, yes, miracle worker, organizer, against the establishment, all of those things in his time. But all of those point to the reality that Jesus is the Christ. That's a big word for John to use. You think about someone who grew up in the Jewish scriptures, who grew up in the Old Testament, someone who, who was a part of a group of people awaiting for a Messiah to come for generations. John says in that one word, do you know how our people have been waiting for a Messiah for, to come for thousands of years? I wrote all of these things so that you might know Jesus is that guy. That you might know he's not just a new teacher, a new rabbi, someone that we should pay attention to his writings and think about once he's gone. That he is the Christ, the Messiah, the one who was promised, the savior of the world. And that he is the son of God, not just another guy, not just another thinker, not just another teacher, not just another person who was able to come on this earth and get a bunch of followers. He is the son of God. He is God in the flesh. And so I wrote these things so that you might believe this, John says, that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah and is the very nature of God among us and that by believing, you might have life in his name. What does John mean by life there, do you think? Because... See, we as a culture, we are obsessed with life. I'm not saying we shouldn't be, but we are. Anything we can do, anything we can do to extend life, to make life better, that's what we want to do. And so if something promises to make life better, we will, we will buy into that. And, and especially if something promises to make life longer, we'll really buy into those sorts of things. Think about all the studies that you, that you read about the things that you do that take years off of your life. 
The things that you do that take years off of your life. So if you sit at work for eight hours a day, you're taking two years off of your life. Or if you, if, you, if you smoke, you're taking years off your life. All of those studies that we read that are about taking years off your life, now we read all the studies about how to add time to the end of your life. If someone tells us, we take these seriously, if someone tells us we can add three seconds to the end of our life for every piece of kale we eat, we don't care how bad it tastes. We will eat that kale. And if someone tells us that if we, if we pay more money and it's stamped organic, that that might extend the quality and the time of our life, we will eat it. Now, I'm not saying that that's bad. I, if it's good, let's do it. But we really want to do anything we can to extend life and make it better. We revere the people that extend life. So the firefighter that pulls someone out of a building the soldier that does a heroic act, the police officer that does a heroic act, the doctor who brings someone back from the brink of death. We revere those people. And I'm not saying we shouldn't. It's all great things. But we use a phrase. We use a phrase that I think we ought to think about sometimes. We say, they saved their life. The doctor saved my life. The police officer saved my life. The Good Samaritan saved my life. And I know what we mean, but allow me to be a bit cynical here for a moment. The doctor delayed the inevitable. So did the police officer and so did the firefighter. They didn't save anything long term. To truly save a life, you would have to be able to defeat the power and authority of death. That's how you'd save something. For us, we are, we are delaying the inevitable, and we're so busy delaying the inevitable, so busy caught up in how we can eat and how we can live to make life better and make it longer, that it's so easy for us to forget that no matter how hard we work, and I'm for it, go jog, go work out, go eat healthy, go do all of that stuff, but don't forget that one day, no matter how hard we try, it's over. And when Jesus, when John says that Jesus, by believing, we have life in his name, John's not talking to you about Jesus giving your best life now. John's not talking to you about let it, helping you live another week, another year, another two years on this earth. John is talking about something much bigger than that. John is talking about eternal life. That by believing what you receive in Jesus Christ is, yes, God walks with us on this earth. And yes, we have peace and hope from him and his power of his spirit every day. But ultimately, what we're granted through belief in Jesus Christ is an eternity with him. And John is saying, I wrote these things. This is what I wrote. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. That's why when you go back and look at all of this, and you go back to John chapter 2 where Jesus is in the temple, he calls it his father's house. And when he's talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he tells them that he must be born again. And when he's talking to the woman at the well, he tells her he has water, that if she'll drink from it, she will thirst no more. And when he heals the 
the people in John 5 and John 9 and John 11, he turns to his disciples and he turns to the religious leaders and he said, says things like, I and the Father are one. I am only doing what my Father has told me to do. And then when he's teaching his disciples in John 13 through 17, he's saying to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And when he dies on the cross and is raised again, he proves once and for all that he alone has power and authority over death. And of all the signposts that John writes down, the one that matters the most to him is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you know how we know that that's true? Because right in the middle of him writing about Jesus' death and resurrection in chapter 19 and 20, he does something that he does nowhere else. He butts in as the author and talks directly to the reader. He comes in as the author and talks directly to you. And in chapter 19, while he's talking about Jesus dying on the cross, this is what he says in verse 35. He says, he, that's John, I saw this and I'm bearing witness he who saw it is born witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. And again, in the middle of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, John is saying to you, the reader, and to me, you need to know I didn't write this stuff so that you would think Jesus was a great guy who did nice things to people. You need to know I didn't write this stuff uh, just because Jesus can do miracles in your life. You need to know I didn't write this stuff just because Jesus breaks down barriers and challenges the establishment. I wrote this stuff so that you may believe that he is the Messiah who has come into this world. He has defeated death and he offers you true life, not just here and tomorrow, but for all eternity. And any conclusion short of that, John says, I'm not leaving open to you. You see, most of us form opinions about who Jesus is, and for many of us, it's something short of this. You know people, and I know people, who would say to us, you know, Jesus was a great moral teacher who had some nice things to say, but I'm not ready to call him Messiah of the world. Well, that's fine. That, that's great that you come to that conclusion. Here's the problem. This book doesn't leave that open to you. John's saying to you, Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, who came down to give you life eternal if you'll believe in him. Now you either have to accept that fully or reject that fully. There's no middle ground in what John's writing. Jesus is who he says he is or he's not. And for many of us, we stop somewhere short of that. And John's saying to you, listen, you want eternal life? You want true life? Well, eternal life has to come through intentional belief. And that intentional belief is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And if you believe that, then you receive eternal life. Well, then the question becomes, how do I know if I believe that? And here in this question, I think is the reason why so many people that you know and I know and so many people uh, that, that are in our world, and in fact, why some of you sitting here this morning are stopping short of calling Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, who raised from the dead and offers eternal life. And the reason we stop short doesn't necessarily have much to do with whether or not we believe it's true, it has to do with something else that's going on in our hearts and in our minds. 
There's a German theologian. He passed away a couple of years. His name was Wolf Hart. Um, his name is escaping me. Where is it? Put it on the screen, John, so I remember. Pannenberg. Wolf Hart Pannenberg. Thank you, John. He passed away a couple years ago, and one of the things he said about the resurrection of Jesus Christ is this. The evidence for Jesus' resurrection is so strong that nobody would question it except for two things. First, it is a very unusual event, and second, and this is the big one, I think, if you believe it happened, you have to change the way you live. See, here's the problem. If you take John at his word that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, who offers eternal life and defeated death, if you buy into that and believe that wholeheartedly, then what Wolfhard here says is true has to happen. If that's true, then you radically have to change the way that you live your life. Because everything that we do and everything that we say should be, should be a result of that reality. But if I stop short, and I say, well, Jesus was a nice guy who did nice things to people. And Jesus even did miracles. I'll go to there. He did miracles. He could do miracles for you. If I stop short of fully embracing why John wrote his book, then I can still kind of do what I want to do. Because Jesus is a nice guy and a good moral teacher, but he doesn't necessarily get to tell me how I live my life every single day. Here's the problem with that. If we stop short of embracing the whole, then we're not believing what John says we need to believe. Stopping short of the reality of who Jesus is as Messiah and Son of God, Savior of the world, the one who defeated death and who offers eternal life, stopping short of that is not the belief that John calls us to. So we ought not to fool ourselves thinking that we're believing in Jesus if we're not willing to go the whole way. This is the conclusion that John reaches. Either we embrace it or we reject it, but there's really no middle ground to sit in. You either believe it or you don't. And John would say, if you believe it, eternal life is offered to you now. Here's the thing. How do you know if you truly believe? I would suggest to you the best way to know if you truly believe and embrace this is to look at how you live your daily life. Because just like every story in the Gospel of John is to be a signpost as to the reality of who Jesus is, your life and my life, if we believe, is to be a giant signpost to the world around us that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and is who God says he is, is who John says he is. And so if an eternal belief, if eternal life comes through intentional belief, then I would tell you this morning that intentional belief must lead you to an intentional life. If this is true that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that belief in him gives you eternal life, if you want to know if you believe, I would tell you to take a look at the way that you're living your life. And you would say to me, well, I came to church on a holiday weekend. I must believe. Well, that's great. I'm glad you did that. Most people wouldn't. But just take a hard look at how you live with me. Because if I take a hard look at how I live, there's absolutely places where I'm not being as intentional as I should be. If this is true, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and he offers eternal life, and by believing I can have life in his name, then how I spend my time, how I spend my money, how I deal with the loneliness and anxiety of this world, how I face my relationships, how I deal with my work, how I handle every single moment of every single day, how I walk into a middle school building, or how I walk into a high school building, how I walk into a college classroom, how I walk into a dorm room, how I walk into my house, everything has to change 
if Jesus Christ is who he says he is. And so if you say you believe this morning, let me ask you this question. How intentional are you being in how you live? Does your life point to the belief that you say you have? And where it doesn't, you and I ought to go before God and ask him his forgiveness, ask him his grace, ask him his mercy, repent, and go and live the way God has called us to live. I invite our worship team to come forward this morning as we close. My greatest prayer for you as we close the Gospel of John is that you would believe what is the most important thing to believe about who Jesus is. And it's not that he has the power to do miracles. And it's not that he is someone who was nice to everybody. And it's not that he was a good moral teacher. And it's not that he challenged status quos and challenged the establishment. It is that Jesus is the savior of the world, that he is the Christ, that God loved you enough to even though your relationship was broken with him, send his son to die on the cross for you and to be raised again that you and I might have true life and have life eternal. That you would not just believe that or assent to it mentally, that you would believe it in such a way that it affects every single moment of every single day and the way that you live your life. So where for you today is intentional belief not leading to an intentional life? Where is there a disconnect? I tell you, some of you are walking into school this week or you walked into school last week, and I get it. It wasn't that long ago I was there. It was a while ago now. You're going to walk into that classroom and no one else is going to believe this or live like it's true. You walk into your college classroom, it might even be worse. You walk into your office and you experience the exact same thing. You walk in and, and you're the only person that believes that it's true and you're the only person that's even willing to try and live like it's true. And that's a challenging thing. And so I get it, the difficulty of living intentionally in those environments, in the world in which we live, that is a hard thing to do. But let me tell you, if it's true, it's true. And if you at the end of this whole thing are going to be spending eternity with Jesus Christ, then it is worth it to stand up for it now. So where do you need God's help to do it? It's worth it to walk into that classroom and live like this is true. It's worth it to walk onto your campus and live like this is true. It is worth it to walk into your office and live like this is true. So God, we come before you this morning and confess to you that there are places in our lives where our belief and the way that we live doesn't match up. God, I, there are places where we have an intentional belief in you as Messiah and Savior of this world who offers eternal life, but we do not live an intentional life. God, I pray in those areas that you would help us. That you would forgive us by your grace and mercy, but you would help us by the power of your spirit to live out what we believe. Give us the courage and the strength that we need to do what you call us to do. 
And God, for those of us in the room this morning who have yet to fully trust you and fully believe that you're not just a nice guy who came to teach us some nice sayings, but Jesus, that you are the savior of the world who offers true life. God, I pray for the person here who is evaluating that and who is on the fence. God, would you reveal yourself to them? And maybe you're here this morning and for the first time you're feeling like all of this is true. Don't miss the opportunity right now just to talk to God where you are. To tell him that you believe. To tell him that you want to follow. To tell him that you want to receive eternal life. That you are sorry for your sin that you want to turn and walk towards him. And if you do, if you assert that belief in your own heart and in your own mind, then you will receive life. God, we thank you for it in Jesus' name.